I'm Jan Gibbons. And I'm Bob Gibbons. Oh, well, I didn't know you were going to pipe in right then. Oh, well, it sounded like... Are you reading the script? <laughs> I didn't know we had a script. <laughs> I'm taking your copy away from you. I think our listeners I... know very well we have no <laughs> scripts, which Clearly. means we have no listeners either, probably. But <laughs> I'll repeat. I'm Jan Gibbons. And I'm with... Bob Gibbons. <laughs> <laughs> with the Confessions of Recovering Landlord podcast. And today... You're going to hear a whole lot more from Bob. I'm sorry. Just tell you right up front. A lot of great topics. Why but wouldn't they want to? How much time do you have? Don't we normally keep this to about 30 minutes? All right. Fine. Goodbye. And we're back. And starting off this week, let's talk industrial first. Um, I thought it was interesting that um, CBRE, one of our illustrious, friendly competitors, uh, did a survey and uh, or an analysis, I guess I should say, and they're predicting some pretty dramatic uh, increases in rent for industrial tenants. Supply and, and demand. Well, yeah, for sure. But it, it was interesting because they were saying that basically, you know, if you're coming off of a five-year contract, five-year lease, that's going to expire this year, you could face an average of 25% increase nationwide. So that's just the average. But the real interesting part is the range of increases. New Jersey, central New Jersey, they're saying could have a 64% increase. Um, Philadelphia and California's Inland Empire, 62% increase. And so those are pretty shocking numbers. I mean, rent growth has gone up by 10.4% nationwide, but, and you know, every, averages always lie, right? Because there's always a big difference between one area and another. But the average vacancy in the U.S. right now at the end of the third quarter was 3.6%. Thank you, Jeff. That's insane. That I have so, two more items coming in today before 5 o'clock. It's well, 5.05. Yeah. <laughs> so when you talk about that 3.6% vacancy, it's because we had a record 826 million square feet nationwide of leasing in industrial buildings. So, And that's actually just in the first three quarters of this year. When we'd had this talk several podcasts ago about how much industrial warehouse was being built before COVID. Right. And that afterwards, the projections just are not keeping up, even with the amount we had, which was a lot. It's just not keeping pace, and because so many people are working remotely and ordering everything In down off, to yeah. toilet paper and bananas online, yeah, it's you've got to have more warehouse to accommodate this. Well, nice segue, by the way. Um, you mentioned people working from home. Let's uh, let's check in on Castle Systems. We haven't talked about Castle for quite a and while. And define Castle again. Castle Systems, K A S T L E. Uh, they're a company that provides uh, access controls for buildings, and so they've been monitoring. They're big brother. They know when I go to work, and they know when I cut out to have a sig. Uh, only if you swipe your badge. <laughs> well, leave. a lot um, of people do. Well, basically, you know, they've been tracking throughout the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, the percentage of badges that are being swiped. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're only doing this in the top 10 markets throughout the, the uh, U.S. But um, as of December 1st, they're showing that 40.6% of people 
have uh, swiped their badges in that week. Is that which, nationwide or a particular that's, segment? That's the average for the okay. for the nation. That's up a lot for, for the ten cities. That is up a lot. Um, it has always been in the thirties, uh, pretty much. Well, right. It was higher in Dallas. But well, sure. That, but places, we're talking averages. It was lower. Yeah. Averages for the for the uh, the U.S. But um, so if we yeah if we look at the uh, individual cities. All three of the Dallas, uh, I'm sorry, of the Texas markets, Austin, Houston, and Dallas, are above 50 percent. With Austin being 59.3, that's that's the highest number I've seen since this has been going on. Um, of course, the usual suspects are low: San Jose, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, Boise, those, Idaho. <laughs> that's not one of the top ten, I'm afraid. But anyway, so that was interesting. But um, this on the heels of Kone Elevators wanting to get into the into the mix. So that's spelled K-O-N-E. So they're one of the manufacturers of, of elevator systems in the uh, in the world. And they did a, uh, some surveys of their own. And I thought this was kind of interesting. They um, they basically said the number of times that the elevator is called or moved and they're tracking that. And so in London, for example, the average number of daily starts, you know, the elevator's called or starts to go somewhere in uh, September of 2019 before the pandemic was around 3,000, I'm sorry, 13,000 in office buildings. So 13,000 times it was started. But by April of 2020, that had gone down to 2,500. So from 13,000 to 2,500. And that pretty much would follow what you would expect when things are being shut down. But um, in the latest figures of November 21, London had rebounded to 72% of what they were pre-pandemic. That's amazing. Now, that doesn't include people like Elf getting in and taking the side of their arm and going <laughs> and hitting every floor. That was the Empire State Building. Okay. Well, I'm just checking. <laughs> well, Amsterdam, um, they didn't give us this in terms of percentages, but the average number was just under 9,000 in October, and it fell to 7,900 in November. So what they're saying in this article is that things are kind of stalling a little bit and even falling in October and November, and they're blaming that on the on the Omicron uh, concern. Um, and even when you go to Berlin, Brussels, Hamburg, Helsinki, you know, all these other places, Milan, Munich, et cetera, they're all saw, past tense, steady rises uh, in their percentages, but that all of them were falling as of October. So, um, you know, we're seeing that every time we come up with some new strain of the COVID, people kind of get a little nervous and quit going to the office. Chicago, uh, they showed, uh, had increased steadily. And then again, it, it fell back a little bit in October, November. Not much. It was really just a, a November. They didn't fall back. China, I thought this one was interesting. In China, they uh, they had returned to normal working Patterns by the early uh, 2021, Shanghai, their average starts per elevator were about 18,300. And in November, they were down to 15,000. So they definitely are seeing the effects of, of Omicron as well. Hotels, uh, same thing. They're seeing a reduction. So, you know, they do say that, look, you know, you, know, you got to be careful because some of these um, data are going to be skewed by based on the way different cultures you use elevators. Mm-hmm. I mean, like London, Shanghai, Kuala Lumpur, Singapore, they all have a lot of really tall buildings with lots of elevators. So those are going to, those are going to tend to see higher usage, um, because walking up isn't really a, an option. Whereas in uh, low rise buildings that are only like two or three or four, um, 
stories tall, you know, I have the alternative. I don't have to get an elevator with a bunch of other people. I can just walk up the stairs in many cases. And a lot of people have all done an alternative to it because it's for exercise reasons. Yeah. Um, I used to go out when I worked at a job prior to this one and uh, walk the elevator for my break. I mean, walk the... Um, the stairs. Stairwell for my <laughs> break. Stairwells. I got away from everyone. They didn't know where I was. I popped in my headphones and walk up and down it. So Yeah, just a little tip, though. You want to make sure that your you floor, get back in. you get back on your floor before you start walking <laughs> Hello, Castle. Where's my badge? Walk up 10 flights, and then all of a sudden it's <laughs> locked, and you have to go all the way back down and then get on that elevator anyway. Oh, I remember when we had a fire drill there, and we were on the 11th floor, and you have to walk down and back up. And that's everyone. And, you know, every big company has um, handicapped individuals. That, Why did you have to walk back up? Well, pardon me. You didn't have to. We chose to because there okay. was a line queued up to get on the elevators. And I thought, oh, there's no way. I'm, I'm just going to run up there and get it done. Well, behind me were some 20-somethings in high heels going, and then, da, 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 and then tonight I'm going to go do it. And I'm like. <sighs> yeah, that seemed like Look, a good idea for about two floors. <laughs> oh, I was not going to let them pass me. So I think I had a heart attack when I got to my floor. Fortunately, they peeled off on a lower floor. I would have died. <laughs> That's funny. Segway into ground leases. <laughs> Well, before you go to ground leases, though, um, I saw an interesting study today that one of our friends, Walt Batansky from uh, Tampa, uh, posted to LinkedIn uh, that kind of goes along with the stuff we were just talking about with Kone and, and uh, Castle Systems. It was a study that was done, I don't even know by whom, but they were surveying office workers. And they said that in the U.S., about 60 million people have office jobs that can potentially be be done from home. So they interviewed these a statistically significant number of people and they found that 30% said they want to work from home full-time permanently. 10% wanted to work from the office full-time permanently. Leaving 60% somewhere in the middle. They don't want to work at all. <laughs> that says they want to go into the office somewhere between 1 to 4 days a week. And uh but what was interesting is they took it a little further and they did some additional calculations and such. And ultimately their conclusion was that 37%, you know, if you, if you take all the, the number of days people want to work and average all this stuff out, 37% of desks would not be needed anymore. And they're of course extrapolating that to the demand for office space. And, um, and so they're saying, you know, a lot of the demand for office space is never going to come back because these people don't want to work from home. They're not going to come back to the office. They're quitting their jobs if they are being forced to come back to the office. And so it was just an interesting way to finally sort of somebody has we've had all these anecdotal um, mm -hmm. uh, descriptions of what people are going to do. This was sort of the first attempt I've seen at actually saying this is the percentage that are not coming back or that are not going to be used desks. I'm kind of following up on that. We were talking to a client last week, and I heard something I'd not really heard before, kind of, but not so succinctly. And they have recently renewed a lease, and they have decided that everyone in this particular location will work from home mm -hmm. for a while. It's not stated for in, how long indefinitely, yet. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. And so we're like, so what do you need the space for? And they had two things. They're needed for new hires to come in and train, absorb some culture, and for poor performers. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Poor performers need to be watched. The noobs and the people that need to be spanked. It's like a decade. <laughs> well, except that 
when you think about it, I really understand why new people who need training, absolutely, they need to feel like they're part of something. They started a new job. Boots on ground. You know, if you start a new job and you're just sort of left to your own yeah. devices, you're kind of lost. But the poor performers are interesting because, you know, certain certain jobs that have very clear cut um, performance criteria that you can assess from anywhere should be able to sort of see that and manage that from anywhere. But I guess it's probably easier to sort of retrain them in person than if they're not in your physical environs. It's carrot and stick. You, you've got to reward them instantaneously, and that's going to happen in, per- in person, whereas it's not remotely. Right. You get the work overnight, and then you see the problems. Now, can we go back to ground leases? Be my guest. Okay. First of all, let's get a definition of what a ground lease actually is. Um, you lease ground. Okay. That sounds kind of <laughs> crazy. Well, it's a, explain it. It's, a, it's a vehicle. It it's a financial vehicle. Well, actually, if you go back, you know, longer term, farmers lease other people's land to grow crops. Mm-hmm. That's a ground lease. Or I'll borrow your land to run a head of cattle for a season. You've well, got the hay, I've farmers, got the, yeah. Or you have a, a hunting lease. I have the right to go onto your property and mm-hmm. hunt. That's a that's a ground lease for all intents and purposes. But that's not kind of the way you're okay. looking well, at it. Well, what I was talking about is this has been a vehicle, a tool that's been used in the U.S. for centuries. But the profile of the typical user is changing. Well, before you do that, though, talk about what is the history, the historical way that you were talking about it. What, how has the ground lease historically been done before you talk about how it's now going to be, be used? It, it's just when someone needs to sell their land that they're on something they're occupying. Well, okay. Let's, there's more that it's, I, I think it's more. Well, complex. then you flesh it out, sir. <laughs> I think it's a little more complex. Okay, well. All it is is when you have a piece of land that somebody leases and then they build a building on it. Yeah. So they're leasing the land instead of buying the land. The, how it, a lot of the historical parts had been more feudal, I guess. Lots of families had owned this land in perpetuity for a long time. Owners that held pieces of property for generations often wanted to preserve their family assets. Yeah. Using ground leases to keep control of the land while turning over day-to-day operations to tenants that signed leases up to 99 years. You always right. hear, oh, it's a 99-year ground lease. And it has to be 99 years or less because if you go over 99 years, then by definition, the government says, no, nah, that was actually a sale. Okay. So... Developers are now discovering ground leases are useful tools when assembling capital stacks. We're going to ask you about that. All right. That is helping new hotels, retail, and apartments, among other projects, sprout up across the country. So how does this help the developer when they're doing this type of project? Uh, They have to raise less money. Uh, If they don't have to buy the land, they only have to build the building. That requires less capital, right? Um, Depending on the kind of product type, the percentage of the overall development cost assigned to the land uh, can be as little as, you know, 10%. It can be as much as 30%. Mm-hmm. You know, I developed a subdivision one time way back in the 80s, and it was assumed to be 20% of the um, of the land was going to be 20% of the cost of the house that was built on it. So you buy a $20,000 lot, that's going to be a $100,000 house. I mean, that's rough, yeah. but, you know, who knows? Well, another thing that's helping people out now, too, I think, is with COVID, if they ran into financial difficulties, selling the land under which your building is located is a quick and easy way to raise capital. Chase Bank does that. 
Uh, Chase Bank built a ton of those little banks on the corners all over town, probably all over the country. And then they sold the ground underneath the building, mm -hmm. but they kept the building. So whoever bought the land owns the land, but they don't get depreciation because you can't depreciate land. Right. Chase kept the, the building mm -hmm. as their they can owners. Depreciate. So they get the depreciation. Okay. Well, give us an idea of who the person is that buys these ground leases. Um, investors. I mean, anybody that wants mailbox money. So it could be somebody who sold another piece of property and they want to do a 1031 exchange. To What's a, a 1031 exchange? It's where you basically sell a piece of property at a profit. And if you don't do a 1031 exchange, you got to pay Uncle Sam capital gains taxes on the gain. So if you bought it for a million dollars, you sell it for $2 million, you got to pay 20% capital gains tax on the million dollar profit. If you do a 1031 exchange, then you go find another property bought to buy for $2 million or more, and you don't have to pay taxes on it at that time. You're not avoiding the taxes, you're deferring the taxes. So if you then sell another, that piece of property later, then you got to pay your taxes unless you do another 1031 exchange. So you can do an indefinite 1030, chain of 1031 exchanges to, to defer the taxes, but to answer your question, it's it's a lot of 1031 buyers that buy those kinds of things. In fact, we have a client right now that's looking at buying the land under a Chase Bank. Well, and explain what you mean by mailbox money. Well, meaning they have to they don't have to do anything. Ma money just shows up in their mailbox. The rent just shows up. So every this month. is an investment where they truly can be hands off. There's absolutely no responsibility for the landlord whatsoever. It's what we call an absolute triple net lease. So the tenant, in this case, Chase, but it could have just as easily been a Walgreens or a Taco Bell or, a, you know, a million other things. If it's an absolute triple net, the tenant has 100% responsibility for everything that happens on the property. Insurance, taxes, CAM, rent If the roll, roof falls everything. in, if the foundation, you know, explodes, anything that happens is the tenant's responsibility. The landlord has no expense whatsoever. They just collect the money for the rent on in this case, ground lease, but it could have also been they bought the entire property, including the land, the building, and in which case the tenant still has the responsibilities for everything. Um, so it just depends. But, you know, back to the ground lease article you were referring to, you know, the capital stack simply means where you're getting your money from. You go put some of your own money in. Let's say you put $100,000 of your own money in. Then you, bought, you collect money from friends and family or other investors and you get another $400,000. Now you got $500,000. That's called the equity. That's the cash that all the owners are going to put into it. Then you go out and you get a loan from some bank. Debt. That's called debt. Well, And there's various kinds of debt. Mezzanine. Which is just a second Provolone, mortgage. mozzarella. <laughs> I mean, there's a ton. I, I like a lot of them on my pizza. People get a lot. They, they like to get fancy names for stuff. But a mezzanine debt is nothing more than a second lien. Right. Second loan. No big deal. Um, but you could also have gotten a construction loan to provide the financing during the construction period. And then you have a takeout loan or permanent financing that when everything's done, now that kicks in and pays off the construction loan. But if you have a ground lease, well, you haven't had to spend as much money because now you're going to have a lease on that where you're going to pay the landowner some amount every year instead of paying them a much larger amount to buy up it front. up front. Yeah. So that reduces the landlord's uh, developer's uh, cost. How does that affect 
affect the user of the property. You know, we're always focused on the users. That's our business. So how does that affect a tenant? So let's just say you have two office buildings and one's on a ground lease and one's not. What determines the rental rate for that? Usually the market. Yeah, the market, right. So let's assume these are identical buildings and therefore can the building that has the ground lease charge more for rent than the other building just because they're on a ground lease? I don't think so. I don't think a tenant's going to go into an identical building and say, I'm willing to pay you more, landlord, because you happen to have a a ground lease payment. That's going to be determined by market conditions. So if you are going to be leasing in a building where there is a ground lease, you need to make sure that your lease does not give the landlord the right to pass that through to you as the tenant. How do you know how the landlord put the deal together? Uh, You don't, but you know what the lease says. If the lease says that we're passing through the cost of the ground lease, then you X that out and say no, unless they've reduced the rental rate for the base rent of the building to compensate for Mm -hmm. that. So -hmm. if their operating expenses includes the ground lease amount and they've reduced the, the, the main face rate of the base rent, all I care about when I'm evaluating buildings is what's the total cost of going in one building versus another building. You know, if you call that base rent, if you call that electricity, if you call that operating expenses, taxes, whatever, I don't really care what you call it. I just want to know how much is that going to cost? Mm -hmm. Who controls that? Do I have any kind of protection on the upside, um, you know, increases in those? Um, So that's really what should matter. And, uh, and so anyway, my point is really on the ground lease, just make sure as a tenant that if you see the words ground lease or in the operating expenses definition or something else, that that is not going to be included in something you have to pay for unless it's been adjusted in some other payment. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Confessions of a Recovering Landlord podcast. As always, we're brought to you at our friends over at Riata Commercial Realty. That would be us. Yes, it would. And you can reach us at 972-677-0028 or texastenantrep.com. Yeah, texastenantrep.com. It's a wealth of information. It, no kidding. You're being a <laughs> smart aleck as always, but it really is. We have built that puppy out. Yeah. Well, thanks for being with us today. We'll see you uh, next time, which will likely be next week, unless we forget or you can't find us. <laughs> Goodbye.